I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. I hope you have your Bible with you. Uh, we don't have hymn, hymnals or pew Bibles in the pews. So uh, maybe you use your phone uh, to read the Bible. Uh, we'll be in Jonah chapter 1 again. This is our summer series. Take a break in the summer from our current study in the book of John. But I want to read for you verses 7 through uh, verses 10. And we'll pray. We'll ask the Lord's help in our study this morning. And uh, we'll see what he has for us in his word. Verse 7, book of Jonah, chapter 1. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we know this is your word. We ask that you bless our understanding of it. Lord, we ask that you open our eyes and open our ears and make our hearts pliable that they might change where we know it needs to change to look more like you and less like ourselves. Lord, I ask that you help us with whatever distractions are on our mind that we might have brought in with us, the things that we've got to accomplish in the coming week, things that have gone wrong or plans that have changed or people who are sick. Lord, these are, these are things that we can cast on you in the form of cares. But Lord, if you would be so gracious to give us these few minutes to consider your living word and continue in the, the faithful work of understanding and obeying the timeless truths of your word. Lord, may they win the day. May they make the difference. May they make us look more like you. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, I'm going to trust that most of us are familiar with the story of Jonah. It's a short book, and uh, we've been considering this for a number of weeks now. It starts with a man who was given an objective. He did the exact opposite. He ran away, found a boat headed to Tarshish, which is the total opposite direction of Nineveh. He finds himself in a storm in the open sea on this boat... And when we get to this passage today, it, the, 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 the error of his way is beginning to catch up with him. And the sailors are sure that someone among them is responsible for the storm. And in order to find out who's guilty, they cast lots. We talked about casting lots last week. And the way they would do this, this is basically their cultural but standardized means of determining Who's at fault when something is uh, sensitive enough that no one really wants to, to say 
They, they, they do something that would otherwise be considered chance, but they trust the result to a higher being. In this case, we're reading it. We know that Jehovah's controlling this. David's made mention of it, of it already in the Psalms. We find out that, that the Lord is the one behind this. And interestingly enough, the last time we see lots used, it's in the book of Acts right uh, before the giving of the Holy Spirit, but they would cast lots to figure out who would replace Judas as the twelfth disciple. The lot fell on Matthias. He was chosen. Well, after the Holy Spirit, we don't see lots anymore. And with our Bibles and with the Holy Spirit and with prayer, we have what we need to make decisions that we need to make. But in this case, they cast lots. And in verse 7, we, we read it a moment ago, let us cast lots. We might know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And then, with dramatic flair, so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And I don't know if you've ever... See, when we talked about this last week with casting lots, you wanted the, the lot to fall on you. Uh, when I talked about how we would draw straws as kids to see who got... Uh, you know the extra dessert or who gets to go first in this case you don't want the lot to, to fall on you and it, we have no idea reading this whether or not this was a surprise to Jonah at first was, was he actually aloof enough to think that this storm wasn't his fault I would think that he would because that they needed to resort to casting lots meant that Jonah had presumed himself innocent or was withholding the knowledge to the contrary. It, he hasn't said, even though he'd been asleep and the captain told him, get up here, we're all about to die, you need to do something, we're praying, you should too. But if he'd fessed up, they wouldn't be casting lots. So it's either Jonah is, is afraid to say, hey, this is all my fault. And you're mixed up in this too. It's not your fault. Or he doesn't think that this is it. Now I would think. With the fact that he's not praying. Means that he has. To know that he shouldn't expect. To be innocent of all this. He might not go to the step to think this is my fault. But if a man's not praying when everybody thinks they might die then this guy's got a problem with his connection to heaven and doesn't think that he deserves or is in the place where he can ask for the Lord's help. So either way, he's in a mess. And you've got to know that he would hope that the lot wouldn't fall on him. When it comes down to that, and whether they're drawing straws or they're dipping into a bag while this ship is tossed all over the ocean, you've got to know that he's hoping that this is not him. And I don't think it, you know, we've mentioned that this story is as exciting to a six-year-old talking about a big fish that swallows a man for three days. But there's, there's all kinds of things in here for any age audience. Every last one of us has been in a situation where we hope the lot doesn't fall on us. If it's coming over top of the hill when you know you're going too fast and there's the man... And you slam on brakes and hope he doesn't see you. Or maybe the guy that was in front of you or the guy that's behind you. But don't stop me. One situation that came to my mind when I was thinking through this. 
was something that happened in second grade. I'll never forget it because that was the first time I ever got in trouble and was found out that I was involved. But in the, in the second grade class, and, and I, from third grade up, I was homeschooled, so this was all different. But in second grade, and then in first grade, that was in Charlotte. This was in Danville at South Hall. They had a, a small men's restroom uh, under this, a set of stairs. And uh, one of the guys in the class had, had shown me a new trick, that if you take a handful of toilet paper and you get it wet enough and you throw it up on the tiles, it'll stick. But what he didn't tell me was that after it sticks, it'll dry, but the water will make a big ugly ring on the, the tile. And this wasn't the suspended towel. This was that old school staple up stuff that would have to be torn out later. So the same kid told a, a few other guys. And by the end of the day, that, there was like a constellation of these all up here. And I think that's where it went wrong because other boys were telling other boys how this worked. And the next day, there was an inquisition. And like any good principal, he's going class to class finding out who did it. And he can automatically just ignore all the girls. This is the boys' bathroom. They're the ones that did it. So when he got to the second grade class and asked Ms. Martin if he could have a few minutes of the time, you got three boys in a sea of girls that are just squirming. And he says, three of you, I want you to come in here. And I don't know why he asked me last. But it was worse because I had to listen to the other two guys lie. And, and it, one of them, they, they both lied. One of them said he didn't have anything to do with it. The other one uh, pointed to two little tiny ones. I guess they were like test runs. They're no bigger than a pea. That was the one he did, which was a lie. And then when I was asked, I was already crying by then. It's the second grade. We're in town now because dad's just been hired at a church. And half the people at the church go to this school. And I'm way more worried about the note that's pinned to my backpack that's going home with me. So yes, I did it. And this principal with the short sleeve dress shirt and the, I'm not kidding, the plastic thing in the pocket with the pins in it gets his pen out. And he's like, all right, was it this one? Was it this one? Was it this one? It was that one. Oh, one of the big ones. I'm thinking, what difference does it make? Is it big or is it small? But I was caught. The lot fell on Isaac that day. Note went home. It was one of those situations where I think I could almost tell I was old enough to know that Dad was at least amused. But there there was consequences to destruction of property at a, at a school. Maybe that's why I was homeschooled. I don't know. But the first chance Jonah gets to speak is after the lot falls on Jonah. And everybody's staring at him. And I think we all know what that's like when, when you're the one. This is all because of you. First time something like this happens and you're for forced to, to make an apology that you withheld beforehand because no one knew at that point. Well, everyone knows now. And at this point, it's kind of amazing the way this ship deals with this man. They first give Jonah a chance to confirm that the lots were correct. 
These men were used to risking their own lives every day in the line of work they're in. It's a dangerous job. But they want to make sure that this man fully deserves his fate. So in verse 8, they say to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And the way that reads, you almost wonder, was he there for the lot casting process? Or has he been called in after they chose it for him? I don't think so. Usually this was done by your own hand. And then they start asking him questions. And you would think that this is an expedited process. They're tossing around in the sea that's getting worse. But the questions that they're asking is for the purpose of gathering as much information as they can. Because based on that information, they need to know what to do with this guy. The lot fell on Jonah. Same as in the bathroom. They're figuring out, oh, what do we do with these kids? Um... Now, in other situations, like not in the middle of a life-threatening storm, the questions that they ask are the same type of questions that you would ask someone when you first meet. Where are you from? What do you do? We do this all the time. These are, these are normal questions that we use to get to know someone. They're, they're identity questions. Asking them are, are an insightful way of basically saying, Who are you? And that's what these men want to know. They don't know Jonah. He's been asleep. We don't know how long he's been in the ship. It's about a month-long journey. Are they in the middle? Did this happen the day that he aborted the ship? We don't know. But they are in the middle of a life-threatening storm. So it almost seems like these questions are a little out of place. Why don't you just grab him up, throw him overboard, be done with it, and hope you survive? But that's not what they do. Um, these questions evidently seemed the right thing to do at the time. And uh, just by way of thinking, you know, when the Titanic was going down, they assembled the band and played Abide With Me in the middle of a tragedy. Sometimes in the middle of stuff, we're not part of it, we get an idea of the way it might have been. You find that a lot of things go on in the middle of a time where you know you're about to die. So it's not completely without precedent. And it seems quite apparent that on the part of these sailors, everything now depends on getting to know this man and doing what they should do with him. Okay, If it's his God that's thrown this storm, then we need to treat this guy in a way that does not anger him, but is justice what should we do and what seems noble is that there seems to be no survival for these men on the boat that leaves Jonah out of account or they'd have quickly expeditiously judicially those are all nice terms for the purpose of throwing him over into the sea they would not condemn him before he's given a chance to speak for himself. So, they asked four specific questions. We read over them, again, having to do with who he is, uh, for the purpose of gaining an understanding about his identity. Everybody's identity is different, so they ask a, a, a handful of questions. Each of us would answer these questions differently. That's why we ask these questions. So the first one is, what is your occupation? And uh, we would need to know that in taking what was written in Hebrew, 
and translating that into English and then reading that English version in a church setting for the purpose of study, for the purpose of understanding, for the purpose of obedience. This word right here is a little difficult to get at. What is your occupation? Most translations use job or, or occupation, but this word is used in other places to refer to someone's mission or their purpose uh, or even their cause. So what might be tucked away in this first question, what is your occupation, means more than only his occupation. It could be more like a meaning of life question describing the overarching purpose uh, or mission. In other words, uh, your job, your marriage, your career, what do you do all those things for? What shapes all those decisions? What, what is your mission? That very well could be. What we've got, though, is what is your job, your occupation? So why are you, all, why are you doing what you do or doing all those things Four. We'll come back to that one. Second question is kind of similar to the third. It's almost like saying the same thing with a very nuanced difference between the two. And that is, where do you come from and what is your country? And this has to do with, a, with physical place and space in which a person feels most at home, where we feel like we belong. You can probably relate to that. Where are you from? And uh, you've heard me describe some of this and the thought process and prayer and the decisions that went into moving from Virginia where I'd been for 30 years to Carolina. And I usually call that back to Carolina because this is where I was born. It's where my mother and father were born. Uh, we vacation on Carolina beaches because I'm not very fond of the one in Virginia. It just doesn't look right. Um, there's more to it than that, and a lot of it I can't really describe. There's just a place where you feel like you belong, even though that might not be the place where you live at the time, or places you're drawn to, uh, where, where geography and place and space are very, very big deal. Um, let's look at the last one. And what people are you? Of, of what people, the way the ESV says it, this is a social question. And uh, even though we, we like to describe ourselves, provide identity as far as, as, as an individual basis, we also live in community. Family ties, political groups, ethnicity, special interests, on and on and on and on. They all shape who we are. And if you answer all these questions together, what you come up with at the end is an identity, and maybe even more than that, a sense of significance, even a sense of security. Where you feel safe, what you feel is important. Answering these questions tell you quite a bit about a person. And if you understand it completely, it will answer a lot of questions as to why they do what they do and how they do what they do, where they do what they do. All these things. They provide an identity. I'll give you an example how different this can be. For some folks, where they came from is more important than their career. 
In fact, they might move somewhere to work for the better part of their life to retire and go right back to where they were born because that's more important to them. In fact, they worked hard and for the purpose of being able to go back. Where then again there are others, maybe their kids who lived in two places and never really got connected and they move off somewhere and it's all about their, their career. They, they really don't have a place that seems to draw them like a magnet. Their identity, who they feel they are, is more to do with what they do than where they do it. All of these things can, can change just depending on where you grow up and where you assign significance or even security. But the problem here in the story, all that's to try to understand what's going on in this book. It's named by the main character, Jonah. The problem here in the story and the problem for us is that these things can become our purpose. That's back to question one. What's your mission? Because just that we call ourselves Christians does not always mean that that is the purpose or the mission. A lot of times these other things can, can take that position and we look to them as our identity. We're going to see that perhaps this is why Jonah's in the mess he's in anyway. He's got all these things out of, out of order. They can become our meaning in life, our security, our identity, even our salvation. Some people look to their career as their salvation for all intents and purposes. So what does Jonah say? Look at verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So let's, let's parse out what Jonah says, take what we know, and try to get at what he means by what he said. Now, he just got caught. The lot has fallen on Jonah. And only now, after the finger is pointing at Jonah as the reason for this big storm, do we finally get a response out of him. We haven't heard out of him yet, but now we do. His backslidden as he is, maybe he's still rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. But given the wide open opportunity he has for witness. I mean, I don't know if, if you all can relate to this like someone who makes their living as a minister. But there's, there's, I almost said there's almost. There is an unfair amount of uh, attention put on the professional to say a word for the Lord at a specific point in time. Uh, it, once it's found out at, at the place where you work that uh, you know, you're in seminary or you go to Christian school or you're the preacher's kid, then we want out of you more than we expect out of everybody else. So th this is in here as well, but the guys don't know this yet because he hasn't said who he is and he doesn't answer the occupation question. He just says he's a God-fear, the one who is in heaven and rules the land and the sea. But we're looking at it. We know who he is and we expect this elegant oration of the gospel. You got him there. They're fixing to die. 
Of course, they'll all get saved. All you've got to do is give them your testimony and then get somebody to do an invitation. You don't even need the clipboard or an altar. They'll be coming forward. I'm being facetious here. What do we get out of this, though? Is this the gospel? Or is this just basically name, rank, and serial number as far as an enlisted prophet? There's not much here. So he's speaking. He's just been given this wide open door to say whatever he wants to say, but it's pretty much a testimonial fail. Jonah's use of the term Hebrew here, he says, I'm a Hebrew, actually doesn't occur very often in the Bible the way he said it. And when we do see it in the scriptures, it's usually in the presence of or from the lips of foreigners. In other words, this is not the way Hebrews refer to themselves. This is the way other than Hebrews refer to Hebrews from the outside. Kind of like in the New Testament when uh, they refer to themselves as Israelites, but all the Greeks refer to them as Jews. Same thing here. Maybe Jonah feels like an outsider, so he's kind of creeping into this and he's explaining who he is from the perspective of someone who's not. It's hard to tell. He was running from the Lord, so maybe this is the way he goes at it. And then, for the first time, Yahweh is pronounced. We finally get to hear the name of God from the voice of his prophet. And He's described in two different ways. The Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, which you would think is an appropriate answer to the men who basically categorize their lives and their schedules on whether or not they're on dry land or on the ocean. It's one or the others. These, these are people that make their living in the water or on the water. So he's somewhat speaking their own language. And that he makes this confession. It's true. And what he says about the Lord is true. So Jonah hasn't become an atheist since he ran away. I think that's something you could note here. I don't think most people do. Even the people that walk away from church get into big trouble and you never see them again. Couldn't find them with radar or bloodhounds. I don't think they lose what they knew. I don't... I, I, I don't I, very few just throw the whole thing away. And even in the middle of trouble, they know who's in charge. And so does Jonah here. So what we've got, if you want to make notes, Jonah's answer is sound theology, but utter hypocrisy. Because if you think about it, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, God of heaven, made the sea and the dry land. Sure, it don't look like he fears God. That's the catch. Jonah claims that he fears the Lord. On the one hand, this would be a simple way to describe the fact that he's a worshiper of the Lord. And we do this a lot. We call Christians God-fearers. But we each fear the Lord to differing degrees, don't we? On the other hand, true fear of the Lord would lead to reverent obedience of the Lord's commands, which would be the exact opposite of what Jonah is doing. So anybody who understands the meaning of fearing God, who hears Jonah say this, 
that claim just falls flat. It's hollow. There's nothing there. And we're reading this, and it's pitiful. It's awful. So let's think through a couple of other thoughts before we make another point here. Is there something to be said that out of the four questions Jonah was asked, he only answers one of them? And the one about his occupation is the one that's, that's most obviously avoided? The question about his people is the only one he answers. I'm a Hebrew. But not the one about what he does or what he values. Now this is speculation because it, it doesn't say this in black and white. But could it be that while Jonah had his faith in God, we, see, we still see that on display, that faith in his God might not be as deep as his, his nationality, his, his being a Hebrew. That's what he wanted to talk about. Maybe that's not, his, his faith in the Lord might not be as fundamental to him. Now, we're speculating, but let's see if it might fit just based on what we know about Jonah. If that's the case, we're speculating, Jonah wouldn't be the first one to take his faith and tack it on to something that's more important to him. We see that a lot. In fact, if we're a serious Christian who knows what it is to worship the Lord with a Jeremiah 17, 9 heart that's desperately wicked that will lie to us, we know we're constantly reevaluating what's most important to us. Some people just act like it's something else to add to the long list, but it's not really the most fundamental in their lives. If Jonah's identity as a Hebrew is more foundational to his self-image, that might explain why Jonah was opposed to calling Nineveh to repentance. Think about it. Where do his loyalties lie? To his God or to his people? Because when he was told to go take what the, the, the Hebrew people had and give it to their enemy, no way. I'm not doing that. In fact, we got it out of his own mouth. If, if you turn over to chapter 4, we're, we're reading the end of the book before we get there, but, but look at it. First three verses. And what's happened in, in chapter 3, the Lord has decided not to punish Nineveh and destroy them. Because Nineveh has repented. So in verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Why? Because God didn't destroy them. He was expecting shock and awe. And he didn't get it. So verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said. O Lord is not this what I said when I was yet in my country. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Um, doesn't quite ring with for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wants his country back the way he had it with, without having to make friends with our number one enemy. 
So it looks as if we might have a case, if we're making an argument, that his being a Hebrew might be more important than him being a child of God. Jonah's uh, characteristics seem to be playing this. And just to put it out again, crystal clear, when loyalty to his people and loyalty to the word of God seemed to be in conflict, Jonah chose to support his nation over taking God's message to their enemy. So here's our next point. Jonah is found to have a spiritually shallow identity. Not only is his theology sound, but his life is hypocritical. Now he's showing signs of quite a shallow identity as far as his spirituality goes. So now it's, we've got enough to start asking ourselves whether or not we're in the boat with Jonah. Um, do we have problems with this? Is this a universal thing? Not just runaway prophets that find themselves on boats with people they don't like? Here's a question. Has the love of God through Jesus gone deep enough into our hearts to displace the things that would otherwise control our lives? Now, this is part of that charge for the, the graduates. You will serve something, either your own agenda or the Lord's. Your identity, who you are, that's a big deal these days. We're teaching our young people to just decide who they want to be and then demand that the world accept it, no matter what it is, how ridiculous or how many people it might isolate offend and then they wonder why they're living lonely lives later in life that is not at all how the scriptures say we do this our identity comes from the one who made us and Jonah's off in this regard here how about this you may sincerely believe that Jesus died for your sins but your significance and security can be far more grounded in your career and financial stability than grace that we have through Jesus. That is quite possible. It's easy to do. You just put all your eggs in another basket. We do it all the time. Or, or another person that we hope to make us happy. Tim Keller said it this way. This is a direct quote out of his book. Shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racists, greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. If our spirituality is shallow in what we consider to be important, we can get into all those kind of things. And, and that's why you can account for mean, hateful people who call themselves Christians. They've just tacked that on to whitewash everything else, but they're just as opinionated because they're running the show themselves. So it's clear that Jonah had a problem. The question is, do we have a problem? God's working on Jonah to correct the problem. Are we allowing God to work on our problems and correct those? Our identity is rooted in the things we look toward to save us, things to which we give ultimate allegiance. So to ask, who are you? And this is, this is something else I'd write down. Who are you is a good question. But there's a better one. 
Whose are you? That really gets down to the nitty gritty. Because if you're looking to things as your salvation, and if it's those things that you give your ultimate allegiance, then you belong to them rather than belong to God, even if you eternally do belong to God. Whose are you? That's the better question. If we were to ask ourselves these same questions, just put ourselves in the boat, the lot has fallen on us. We're being asked, who are you? What's your occupation? Who's your people? Where do you come from? All those things. It might be a, a good exercise to see how we answer those questions. Today's Father's Day. It's, it's different than Mother's Day, isn't it? It just doesn't get the, the, the high profile. Not as many cards are bought. Not as many flowers are sent. Boy, if we were to just tabulate the nice things said from our heart toward our mother as compared to our father, would it, would it match up? Why is it that men just have this trap door it's kind of like a gag reflex when you try to eat something that you shouldn't and it just won't go down well it works the other way when you try to tell your father what he means to you there's no problem with what he means to you it's just getting it out of your mouth and saying it is tough we uh i saw my father friday along with my two brothers we had a good time um but Father's Day is just tough. A lot of things go unsaid because that's, that's the way men do one another, right? Especially in our families. But if you consider the position of a father, theologically, what we understand as Christians, that it was God who instituted the, the building block of humanity known as the family. And then by his design, the way he put all this together, the burden of leadership it rests on dad's shoulders. Uh, mom compliments dad, and dad compliments mom. And the Lord has worked out this, this beautiful mechanism for flourishing, known as the family. But it's men who, who are to lead. It, 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 it's men who will we'll understand a, a book like Jonah a little better, I think, because we see the same stubbornness, the same resistance to, to fess up to something that's clearly a problem, uh, having these priorities out of whack, needing to ask himself not just who are you, but whose are you? Because a man wants to be his own man. That's just the way we're built. We don't need anybody. Do we? We have to wrestle with these things. So when we look at something like this on a Father's Day, and we come to the place where we're asking ourselves questions regarding the shallowness or the depth of our spiritual identity, I don't know what could have bigger implications or ramifications to the homes that we're leading than something like that. What do you think? Would you rather have 
a Jonah like this for a father on Father's Day? I mean, just think of the way the card would look. Hey, thanks, Dad, for uh, almost killing a whole boat full of people because you ran away from what you knew you were supposed to do. Maybe just go on. It'd be an awful card. But we're all prone to this. We should probably just, you know, I I think it was the the Puritans who actually had a, a thing they would read in church where they'd read through this. And I think the, 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 the Jews might still to this day. And when they're done with the book, they all say in unison, I am Jonah. I do this too. So if you think of a boat and a storm and your family, family's going to need to know who you belong to. They're going to need the reassurance that comes through the right type of leadership. This has been a bad year, full of bad news. Started with a virus. We're all learning. And, and, and even in the area of common sense. And then we watch our nation go through another round of learning or not learning what Jesus has been saying for 2,000 years. To love your neighbor as yourself, down to the specifics of how you go about it. And that is, worry more about being a neighbor than which ones of these are your neighbor. And then this latest round of bad news has to do with with the, the rights that this country lives by and whether or not they'll be extended not to who we are, but what we do. And it's, it's going to be tougher and tougher and tougher to teach what this actually says. And what's right and what's wrong. Those are storms. We need spiritual depth as far as our identity. Not, not shallowness. So I thought the way I'd close this out, just as an encouragement for dads, including myself, because learning... What it is to be a father helps you understand a lot about your father. It's all part of the way life works. But there's another passage of scripture that's kind of the polar opposite of what we read in Jonah. They both involve a ship. They both involve a storm. And uh, the outcome is a lot different. But this is from the 27th chapter of Acts. And Paul the Apostle is a prisoner on a ship and he's warned them not to go it's the wrong time but they go anyway and here you have God's man in a boat in the middle of a storm same as Jonah where in one the man has compromised himself and his message because of an imbalance of priorities and just unconfessed sin And then the other is a person who's right where God needs him. He's available and he knows who he is. Let me read to you a little bit of it. The whole chapter is about the shipwreck on the island of Malta. But there's just a few verses. Verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, 
All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and lost. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. You're still carrying the message. I intend it to be delivered. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. The rest of the story goes for another several days to where he says you need to eat something. And they eat almost the last meal and they throw the rest of the wheat into the water. And he says we're going to be shipwrecked. And they find a specific place, drop the anchors, drag in to a, a bar. They land on the bar. The waves are beating it all to pieces. He says you've got to go. They decide they're going to kill the, the prisoners and the man who's in charge of Paul changes the order. He's quite partial to this guy. And they all, every last one, almost 300 people survive. But if you're one of these guys rowing for all you're worth, who would you rather be stuck in a boat with, Jonah or Paul? And what's the difference between the guys? They're both commissioned as messengers. It's just one of them knows who he belongs to. The other one would rather consider himself a proud Hebrew who's in too deep with this problem between Nineveh and Israel. At least that's the way it looks. So for Father's Own Father's Day, we've got a lot to learn here. And don't ever reduce the Bible to moralism. Be like this guy. Don't be like this guy. Apart from Jesus, we're all lost and we're all in trouble. Only because of what Christ did through Paul, by grace alone, was he able to know who he belongs to. So his daddies, know who you belong to. And let your kids know who you belong to. And no matter what the storm is, you'll be fine. Because you belong to God. With that said, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for what it means. Lord, thank you for Father's Day. Thank you for Jonah. Thank you for showing us a prophet with a bad attitude. Help us not to know that we're not capable of just as bad of an attitude. If we remember who we belong to, remember our place of privilege, recipients of grace, Lord, that'll go a long way and our relationships with others. Help us to prioritize our home so that our children know who we belong to, who they belong to. And Lord, may you receive the glory and honor. Thank you for grace. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for taking our place, paying our sin debt. Lord, bless this day, the remainder of it, fathers and sons, families alike. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.